We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stopping. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. Ben, we have a special episode today. We are joined by Dr. Amishi Jha. Amishi, you are a professor of psychology and director of contemplative neuroscience at the University of Miami, where you are leading research on the neural basis of attention and the effects of mindfulness-based training on cognition, emotion, and resilience. You are also the author of the brand new book, Peak Mind, which is what we're going to chat with you about today. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us. Oh, it's great to be here. I thought I would start with just a quote from actually, it's from the conclusion of the book. Um, I thought in two or three sentences, it did a really nice job of summarizing what the book was about, what the research that you're engaged in is all about. And I thought it would just be a nice place for us or a nice way for us to get into the work, into your work, into your research. Um, so let's start there. And here's the quote. It's not simply about being able to focus on an assignment or project or task. It's not only about being more productive or performing better at work or being a more present parent or partner. It is about those things, but it's, but it's about something more, something bigger. Having a peak mind means living fully in the face of everything we have to deal with as human beings through stress and grief, through joy and tragedy. And so this book is all about attention. And my first question to you, kind of big picture uh, question to you is when we think about attention and often when Ben and I talk about it, we have a very kind of narrow definition of what that attention means. And oftentimes for better or worse, what we're talking about really is just the, the cultural environment that we all live in with our phones and the notifications and the noise and all of these things. But this book is very much a broader sense or broader look at what attention really is. And co so just as a starting place, can you just give us a sense of that bigger, that broader definition of what attention is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love that you picked up on that particular sentence because uh, it really is in some sense the culmination of the entire journey of the book. So, uh, and, I, and I really meant, meant it, that it is much more than, than just success in some sort of superficial sense. So yeah, I'm you know that's my that's my thing. I'm an attention researcher. The bulk of my life's work has been formally looking at the brain systems of attention, understanding how they're organized in the brain, and even considerations regarding kind of the evolutionary pressures that might have led us to having this thing called attention. Mm. You know, it's so interesting when we think about the brains we have right now that we walk around with. In some sense, we I don't think have the appreciation that we are the success story of evolution, that everything we have right now, whether we feel it's a feature or a flaw, resulted from some set of pressures that our ancestors long ago had to bring them forward. So attention is, is very much one of those success stories. And as far as we can tell, the reason it developed is because the brain and this is long before we were actually human beings, but the brain had a big problem, which was the job of the organism is to maneuver in the world, to survive, right? To, to get food and to reproduce and continue uh, existing. But the brain was going to be the tool by which you're going to learn about the environment so that you can sample it and appropriately advantage your, your success. And the big problem it had is that it could not fully process everything around it. So in some sense, 
attention is the answer to the problem space. So if I can't, if I, as this brain now embodying all brains of my ancestors, <laughs> uh, cannot know my environment, how can I possibly get a sense of it? Well, maybe I can know it bit by bit, chunk by chunk. And what attention allows us to do is it uses the limited hardware and software of the brain. And it says, I'm going to recalibrate all that I do as the brain based on the little bit of information I can sample. So if I look at this part of my environment, I'm going to recalibrate so that I'm fully getting what's going on. The sights, sounds, smells, everything that I need to know. And then you kind of sample through to create what we consider our conscious experience, which is this, in some sense, illusion of piecing together all that we have sampled. And so if you think about attention that way, it's like, oh, that's pretty cool that evolution figured out a way for us to understand what is happening in the world around us. So the question becomes, well, how are you going to sample the world? One way is just the way I described the content. It's over here, over here, over here, et cetera, kind of, kind of scanning, if you will. And I often use this metaphor of a flashlight as a way that, that the brain does that. It's, it's just like if, if you could think of the brain without attention as really being like a darkened room, it has no idea what's happening. It's blank. And attention now allows it to illuminate, to advantage some parts so that it captures what's going on there and then use that flashlight to scan all around. Very handy way to sample the environment. And it ends up that that same brain system we can use to sample now our internal environment. What are my thoughts, feelings, sensations, concepts, stories, whatever it is in this very rich internal milieu that I walk around with, what's happening uh, kind of moment by moment. And of course, the interesting space, which is the in-between, right? Between what's happening out there versus in here, which is constantly evolving. But that's, as you said, that's really many, many of the ways people think about attention nowadays is that it's like focus, narrow, select, advantage. But we can sample the environment in many different ways. The content and narrowing is not the only way. So another brain system that has, again, evolved to allow us to sample is has very different properties. Its job is not to narrow and restrict like a flashlight would where, you know, it's kind of looking only at, at some physical space and, and moving around, but it's advantaging the present moment. So what is happening right now relative to what happened a few moments ago or what might happen next? Very important to do, especially if you want to be vigilant regarding the environment in this moment. And if you didn't have that capacity, you know that, you know, you're, you're, you're laser focused on eating something, finding a berry or whatever it is, again, ancestors, and you miss the fact that there's wrestling behind you and you may be eaten or a storm's coming and you may, you know, you may need to get shelter. So that second way of orienting, sorry, of, of paying attention is not about narrowing and restricting. It's about broadening and being receptive, not discounting anything. But the key is that it's about what's happening right now, sampling the moment here and now. And we call this the alerting system, which has to do with being vigilant regarding our present moment kind of experience. And then a third way that, again, broadens further this notion of attention is not so much about narrowing or even broadening, but this is a more complex and more evolved way of, of orienting or sampling the environment, I should say, and, the pres and all that's happening with our attention. It's based on our goals. So I'm going to approach the situation with what is my goal right now? You know, is my goal to have a fulfilling conversation or is to actually look at the decor behind you? Very different way of orienting to the experience, but my goal will guide everything that happens beyond that. That's something we call the uh, the executive system. 
And this system, just like the executive of a company, you know, the executive's job in an organization is not to do every single thing, but the executive sets the tone for the goals, what's valuable, what's important, and then ensures that the behavior that is engaged aligns with the goals. And when there's a mismatch, you course correct. You know, the boss says, nope, stop that task. And she might say, do this thing instead or whatever it is. So executive functioning is yet another way that we can interact and engage our attention. Very different. I hope that part make, made sense. So you're absolutely right. My intention was to broaden how we kind of colloquially think of attention, but to do so with this broad umbrella of attention's job is to prioritize some information over other information. Mm -hmm. And the way we do it can vary. I, I think that uh, um, this is it's I'm fascinated by this and we talk a lot about the importance of owning your attention and gosh as Patrick alluded to as well the 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 multitude of distractions are endless now but why maybe you could share why why does attention matter like why why do we like why why do you research this why did you write a book about it why have you dedicated your life to attention Right. And I think that the first thing I think I set the tone of why it matters fundamentally, we wouldn't know what was ha what is happening in our environment. We wouldn't know what's happening in the moment. And we certainly wouldn't be able to guide our actions based on our goals if we didn't have this system. So that's sort of the, the kind of if we could uh, intuit what the purpose may have been for why it evolved. But then let's just think about right now in the present moment, what we know about attention as a field. And there is an entire enterprise about, you know, close to maybe a hundred years of research now on this topic. And, and what we know is a lot. What we know is that this core capacity of attention in all three of these systems, you know, the flashlight, this, uh, this narrowing, uh, what we call the orienting system or the alerting system, which is this broadening, and then the executive control, which is, is goal-based behavior, all three of those together, which we could just call, you know, um, attention, they play a role in almost every single thing we do. So just to, to put it plainly, let's start with our ability to think. So what I mean by that is to learn information, to deliberate concepts, to follow a train of thought, to problem solve, strategize. You know, everything we'd say is like a cognitive function. Couldn't do any of that without all three of these systems. And, and you can understand why, right? If you didn't know what the goal was, you could never even know how to orient to what's going on right now. If you couldn't narrow even an idea in your mind, everything that's happening would cloud it. It would be like a cacophony and we couldn't even make sense mm -hmm. of it. So thinking is an example, but that's not the only realm. And by the way, we know that, for example, if we, if we bring people into the lab and we test their attention, we look at how good they are at each of these systems, and then we give them tasks of thinking or learning or problem solving, there's a relationship. There's a strong correlation. The better you are at these raw systems of attention, the better your performance on complex cognitive tasks. So it does that go as far? Does that does that correlate go as far to not only um, complex tasks but also towards um, success, the way that society would determine it, to um, happiness, fulfillment, health? Is this like a um, attention affects every literally everything? Well, so like it starts exactly. there. It starts there. So, you know, thinking is just one of the realms. The next one over, I would say, that has been studied broadly is feeling, emotion. And it's not just the experience of emotion. Because think about that. Even to experience an emotion, you need your attention. Like, think of the last time you saw a beautiful sunset or a beautiful vista. 
to even enjoy and feel that immersive experience of you know the well up of 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 positive emotion if you were too distracted if you all of a sudden heard a, a notification on your phone and you were over there or somebody's calling you and you're over here or you're preoccupied with something about something, you will not be available to experience that emotion. So experiencing emotion and then regulating emotion so that the expression of your emotion is proportionate to what's appropriate. So so thinking, feeling, and then the third realm goes to what you were saying, which is the broader kind of interpersonal domain. We call it social neuroscience. So looking at our ability to connect with other people, to take their perspectives, to understand their points of view, to lead other people. And, you know, in terms of the, the neuroscience literature on, on the mind, these are the sort of siloed things, cognition, what we call affective uh, neuroscience, and then social neuroscience. And yes, all three of those are impacted by attention, are, are correlated with how well people can pay attention. And the sum total of those tie into what we might call successful complex behavior or being a successful human being. So you have a... Um... Um, an attention continuum, which is what you've alluded to a little bit here. Before yeah. we get to that, I have to I have to pull this out because in order to experience the beautiful sunset, and actually this past weekend went and saw the first um, the sun rise um, in the first place that it hits um, in the United States in Bar yeah. Harbor. Uh, oh. It was really cool. Have you ever been up there, Pat? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, Bar Harbor, Bar Harbor, Maine. It's the first place in the United States that gets a sunset. We went up there and watched it. And to your point, you're paying attention. And because you're paying attention, you feel this thing. And if you weren't paying attention, if I was scrolling through my Instagram feed, I wouldn't get that. So can you is that is that bi-directional? If I'm experiencing something bad, mm -hmm. can I purposely distract myself not to feel something bad? Yes. Attentional distraction or distracting yourself can temporarily at least make certain kind of mental content kind of dialed down right but it depends on how you approach distracting yourself so if the approach you take is what we call suppression and you know there's so many interesting experiments that have been done about there like if let's let let's take it out of the emotional realm and i just say okay ben don't think about a white bear just mm. don't Whatever you do, do not think about a white bear. What are you going to not think about? A white bear. A few minutes later, if I ask you, what are you thinking about? It's gonna, it's going to be a white bear. So this notion of actively pushing something down, it's a paradox because you have to remember what you're trying to inhibit, which increases its saliency in your mind. So if you take a distraction approach, which is that, it's probably going to fail. And that's why essentially suppression is not a good emotion regulation strategy. But if you do something else where you're fully attending in, Im in an immersive way with something else, like let's say you're, at the, you're looking at this beautiful, um, not looking at a beautiful sunset, but looking at a terrible image, some, some terrible tragedy has happened, and uh, you know there's nothing you can do to intervene. You're just watching it, you know? But you know that the more you continue to stare at it, it may actually start negatively impacting you. How are you, in fact, you know, this morning I was talking to somebody that works with, um, uh, Department of, of Homeland Security and looking at like human trafficking. There's so many examples of terrible oh, wow. stuff that as human beings, we don't want to have happen and it's our responsibility to stop it. But the, the experience of terrible stuff impacts us. So the question becomes, how do you orient in a responsible way toward difficult content, but not have it invade you so much that you become destabilized? 
I mean, if I knew how to do that in a foolproof way, you know, I would be such a, I would give that gift to the world. We don't know Mm -hmm. it yet, but we know Mm -hmm. what we can, we can try. We know the things that don't work. So suppressing it is not a great idea. Distracting yourself may work. Like I'm just going to look over here. I'm not going to look at the image on my screen, but in some cases you cannot look away. I mean, a lot of the first responders that we look at, we would, it would be, we would all be in a terrible position if they decided to look at, look away when a, a car crash required their intervention. Right. So oftentimes we can't, even if we want to. So that's actually been one of the journeys of my work is how can we orient our attention? How can, orient isn't even the right word. How can we use or train our attention so that when it is in challenging circumstances, it's still able to function well? And that's frankly why, as you, you know, as you were reading, Patrick, the, the culmination of the book in that last quote, that's the key. It's not that we will never see difficulty in our life or that we will never experience challenge. It's we want to train our minds so that we have the best chances of success in the midst of that. So I don't know if that answers your question, Ben. No, it's great. It's, uh, you know, so you just alluded to it, but um, this maybe gets us that next piece of training your mind. So how do you, how do you suggest people go about, um, I should say, training attention? Because Yeah, mind, yeah. It, I mean, it's, yeah. it is training. It's training the mind. It's such a big part of the mind. And attention, as we said, recalibrates the entirety of what the brain does, which is why it's so powerful. And that's why, just like you were intimating, right? If you're looking at a beautiful sunset, the entirely, entirety of your being may be filled up with a sense of awe, wonder, positivity. And in the same, why is that? Because attention that you're devoting to the sunset is recalibrating how the brain functions. That becomes the most salient thing. And your information processing is biased in that direction. And then you pointed out, if you go in the other way and it's bad news, same thing. So it's such a powerful system that we want to, we want to be able to, um, use it in a way that is wise for our success. But, you know, just to just kind of put an underline on the vulnerability part before we move to the trainability, it's, there are things that we know will make attention vulnerable where the, the, the flashlight, as we talked about, will be wandering all over, or it'll continue to be yanked by things that are inappropriate or this broad receptive stance may become hypervigilant so that we feel destabilized. Like everything is sort of a, a caution sign that requires not just intervention, but anxiety provoking engagement, or that executive may completely drop the ability to maintain any goals. So things can go awry in very known ways, right? Either you're hyper fixated or not fixated at all, not vigilant enough or too vigilant, uh, too tied to your goals and inflexible or not able to hold your goals. Those are the kind of the, the kind of levers of, of, of one side or another of each of those. But it ends up that things like stress, feeling like you do not have the capacity to meet the challenges that are of, are required of you, threat, meaning you are under some kind of attack, whether it's actual or physical danger or psychosocial threat, like you're being evaluated in a way that you don't feel is either you can't meet that standard, like you're the greatest athlete in the world and you don't feel like you can be right now. Um, so stress, threat, and then negative mood having just a dysphoria. We know that when the circumstances in our minds contain that kind of content, our ability to pay attention in any of these ways you've been talking about will become compromised. Mm. And so the work in my lab has really aimed to work at essentially elite performers, meaning either they're elite athletes or they're first responders or elite military personnel or business leaders. I mean, these are, these are people that, that frankly, like all of us aspire to be 
the top of our field. And in those circumstances, you're always going to play at that edge of stress, threat, and negative mood are going to be the professional milieu in which you have to operate. So if we start out with the first point, which is attention is this incredibly powerful, powerful thing, we need it. It's going to become vulnerable by a certain set of circumstances. And your professional context will always put you in, at the height of those circumstances. Of course, you want to figure out a way to train yourself to be better. And that, that just want to kind of show that through line because that's what led us to wanting to figure out solutions. It's you, there's got to be a way. And as a brain scientist, again, knowing that there is this thing called neuroplasticity, we want to figure out how to do that. So we tried a lot of different things and to kind of short, shorthand it, what we ended up finding is the unusual solution to this, what we might even perceive as a modern problem of, of so much stuff in the environment and so many challenges was mindfulness training, mindfulness meditation training. And if you think about what a standard mindfulness, so just to define what I mean by mindfulness, it's paying attention to our present moment experience without a story about it, without editorializing about it, with a knowledge that whatever's occurring is occurring, but I'm not going to react or, or even interpret it. I'm getting the raw data of the experience. So if that's what mindfulness is, training for it could be very handy because, again, the vulnerabilities that will degrade attention are exactly the conditions that are not present-centered, that are definitely regarding editorializing in a threatening, stressful, or negative way. Um, and so that was very cool. It's like, oh, we've got this problem space. This may be a solution, so let's train for it. And it ends up when you actually get into the depths of the training, you see that each of those systems of attention we were talking about at the outset of our conversation are involved and may potentially be strengthened by the training. Okay, I just want to highlight that because that was really uh, something I want to pull something out from that yeah. because um, the there's this like there's good stress and there's bad stress and there's the like right in the middle of that continuum is kind of where we want to be um, you know and um, and the way that I'm hearing you say that is too much stress it pulls you away from that present state because it creates this too much of a vulnerable state to like, it sends you away from. Um, the raw data, the, 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 the present moment, the, um, I can experience this now and you start creating a story around it and either attaching that to, um, um, a mental map that we've had from our past or, um, trying to project out into the future for something that may or may not actually be real. And I think that's incredibly powerful because, you know, the, the little bit that I've started to experience with this and I played with some meditation and, um, uh, mindfulness experience and worked with a few coaches and, um, gosh, you really, once you, once you pull back the curtain a little bit, you really start to become aware of the storytelling that we're doing. And there's, it's a constant and whether you call it, um, your ego, um, or whatever it might be, or just that voice inside your head. I found that that mindfulness practice, fill in the blank on, you know, you have a bunch of different practices that you, you give in the book, but it's incredibly powerful to um, bring to light that actual thing of there's a story being told here and really um, it might not be what actually is going on. And chances are it's not what's going on. It just makes me feel – it gives the ego something to latch onto, whether it's a level of importance or um, I'm the victim or 
Um, this is being justified and re- rationalized and reasoned away in some because it gives us a sense of control over uncontrollable circumstances. Um, it's really powerful. I was wondering, can you lean more into that um, idea of the mental models, the simulations um, versus in the story we tell ourselves versus what mindfulness is actually trying to pull out? Right. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I love to talk. I'd love to talk about that because I think that you're absolutely right. That is a very powerful kind of realization when we start seeing our mind in that way of, oh my gosh, look at that. I'm simulating a whole reality that may or may not be tied to what's going on around me. And, you know, just realizing that gives us a little bit of opportunity to make different choices, like to know that the thoughts that we generate in our mind are not equal sign reality, but they're actually some uh, attempt for all the reasons that you just described that we're trying to overlay on top of quote unquote reality, right? Somebody gives you a particular look or a particular event happens. The causal reasons for that or the intrinsic motivation for that, you're guessing. You don't know. You know, I don't know if you you, you have a pain look on your face because you stubbed your toe or because I've I've violently attacked your character. I don't, you know, I mean, I could, I could make assumptions, but I would be guessing. So I think that just, that's a very important insight. Thoughts are not facts, right? That the, that, that, that the simulation we create in our mind is not equal to reality. Turns out very hard to see that in our own mind. For the same reason that we have this powerful mind that's capable of what we, you've already described, mental time travel. So we can simulate the past and recreate it to reflect on what's happened. And we can simulate the future to predict and plan for what to do next. When we do that, our attention is along for the ride. So when you think about, you know, essentially, if you just right now think back to the time you were in, was it Bar Harbor, Maine, when you were looking at the sunset, right? So that wasn't, that's not right now. You're, You're not there right now. But if you think back at that moment, what is your mind doing in order to recreate the circumstance. It's paying attention to the memory and attention is recalibrating your brain so that you are in that, in that landscape, in that moment with whatever full scope of what was going on is kind of brought back to mind. So you were immersed in that reality. You are fused with that reality and your attention is in the past in that moment. Same thing if you were going to foreshadow to, you know, the next conversation you're going to have or what you're going to have for dinner, you're, you're placing yourself in the future. So to know that the reason we are so um, prone to believing simulations and thoughts is no fault of our own. It is the way the brain is designed. It's, it's the necessary way in which we can transport ourselves. And by the way, we're not just able to transport ourselves in time. We can transport ourselves in other people's mind. So there's mind. So there's time travel and mind travel, which I think is also very, very important. A lot of times we are mind traveling and we are wrong, right? So mm-hmm. when I mind travel and said, oh, he's not angry with me, even though I just wrote this you know, this horrible character assassination thing I just posted, posted on my blog, he's just angry because he stubbed his toe. Well, I'd be totally wrong. But I've mind traveled in an inappropriate manner. And we do this constantly, right? And, and oftentimes we're right, but we're still guessing. So both of these things transport and, and really hijack attention away from the present moment. When it happens too often and in a dysfunctional manner so that we're not just reliving the past, but we're ruminating, regretting, we're stuck in it, or we're fast forwarding to catastrophize and worry to the point of paralyzing ourselves from taking action, that's consequential. We're spending out that attentional fuel 
So that's bad because there's less of it available. And frankly, any data that's coming in in this moment, like maybe even you telling me why you have that particular look on your face, I will completely miss it because my attention's over here or over there or somewhere else. So I hope that, you know, the simulation aspect is the, the first step, again, is to know why it happens, that it happens, frankly. That is not necessarily equal to reality. And we should remind ourselves often that we are simulating. And that's where actually mindfulness training can help us because it, it not only is a reminder in the sense of, you know, a sticky note for ourselves to, to do it, but intrinsically held moment by moment going through our lives. Like, oh, that person cut me off. Maybe he's not a jerk. Maybe he's going to pick up his daughter and he's late. Like you just realize every story you make up may or may not be correct. So, um, so before we get into like actual, the, the actual practice of mindfulness stuff, there's You've used a couple of different terms here, which is, you know, the wandering mind, um, the distractions, it gets hijacked, um, the fragility of our minds. It seems like that's a glitch in our system. Like why, why is it so easy for our attention to get hijacked? I know you laid out a little bit in the beginning with like, there's the flashlight and then you gotta be aware of, you know, that this twig going snap in the woods behind you or the storm coming. Is that, from an evolutionary perspective, is that the reason why? Yeah, it really is because you don't want, you want to have the right amount of flexibility. If you become so hyper-focused that you don't understand, notice what's happening in your environment, you may, you may not survive your environment. And if then you, does that, sorry, and then does that also lead into why we go into the past and why we go into the future? Because we're trying to um, connect dots from the past, like, oh, the twig would snap when, the twig went snap in the woods. Last time that happened, a bear jumped out. Exactly. It, Very yeah. helpful thing so, to remember. So these are, yeah. you know, anything we can point to and say, oh, that's so annoying that we do that. We can also say, yeah, but it makes sense that we would do that, right? Right. So my starting point is not to fight the fact that evolution had la has landed us in this particular instantiation of the brain. It's that this is the reality. And what, yep. what else we know from our lab research is that it, it's not so much that 50% of our make, waking moments were mind wandering. It's that under stressful circumstances, consequential circumstances, where you're not in that, you know, letters EU, you stress, good stress, you're in distress, you are disadvantaging yourself further. That's what I think we can protect against because we're driving these systems that are set the way they are for a reason now in a dysfunctional manner. And we're feeling it. We're feeling like things are not working well. And, and if we can, if we can train ourselves to help have that protect, have protection against that, we should try. And that was a big unknown. Could we even train attention in this way? It was really an unknown. We were hoping that you could, and we tried a lot of different things like making people play video games that help their attention or putting them in a positive mood or having them look at very you know different technological solutions, light and sound devices. They might've had a temporary effect, but nothing that people could walk around with and, and fundamentally alter the way they functioned at a later date. So it wasn't transforming the way they functioned. It was temporarily changing it. But with mindfulness training, we found a solution that was enduring. Of course, you have to keep practicing just like physical exercise to benefit. But when people practice, they did benefit. And it was altering the default negative consequences of a lot of very stressful circumstances for people. Okay. So what are the mechanics of mindful, the mindfulness practice you're so, talking right. about? So as I said, that the key is that it's present-centered and non-editorializing, right? It's being in the here and the now. Essentially, if you think of rewind and fast forward as a default, 50% of the time, we're in play. The button is on play. If you think of an MP3 player, we're right here that. in the moment. 
noticing what's going on moment by moment. And the practices are to allow more of that mental mode to show up on demand. So, so how is it going to show up? Well, first of all, we have to notice, oh, look at that. I'm going to rewind or fast forward. So, so let's just take one very foundational practice of, of, of mindfulness, something I call it the find your flashlight practice because attention is this flashlight. Uh, often it's referred to as just mindfulness of the breath, but I want to be clear that it's really not about the breath per se. It, the breath is just a handy target. You know, this is not about breath manipulation, box breathing or anything like that. Those are great things. Not what I'm talking about here. We're going to, in a, in a, in this find your flashlight practice, which is one of those that I give in the suite of practices in the book, you're just going to sit in a comfortable place, you know, start with 30 seconds to a minute and work yourself up to 12 minutes a day. And first of all, notice that you're sitting and breathing. Like how often are we noticing that we're breathing? Unless there's something wrong, like we have a cold or something like that. We're usually not even acknowledging that aspect of our phenomenal experience, but we're breathing. And then we're going to take that flashlight and kind of point it toward, direct it toward a chosen target for the short period of time we're going to practice. And that target is going to be something that is salient regarding the breath. So it could be the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils, or maybe your chest moving it up, up and down. Whatever it is for you, commit to one target tied to breathing, the sensory experience of breathing. Not thinking about the breath, but really feeling it. And then you're holding the flashlight directed there. That's your goal. The executive control system saying, my goal right now is focus on the breath. So the first stage of the exercise is focus on these breath-related sensations. The second instruction is when you notice that your mind has wandered away. So the flashlight is no longer pointing on the breath. First of all, you're going to notice that. That's important. So notice. Redirect attention back. So it's essentially focus, notice, and redirect. And when we think about how it relates to those three systems, we get it. The focusing is the flashlight. I'm going to point it towards something. The noticing is engaging that broad receptive stance of present moment occurrences. What's happening right now? Moment by moment, I'm monitoring. Oh, look at that. I'm thinking about the weather or I'm thinking about lunch. I'm not actually paying attention to breath-related sensations. It's gone off somewhere. And then the third instruction of redirect is essentially executive control saying, what's the goal right now? Are you on task? Are you on the goal? No, I'm not. Okay. Redirect, get back. So in some sense, a lot of our colleagues, a lot of our military colleagues, you know, given the physical fitness sort of uh, norms in military culture and in athletic culture too, say, oh, you're giving us a mental push-up. you know, focus, notice, redirect. I can do those reps. And if I do those reps every day, what will happen? And I say, well, what we're seeing is that all three of those systems of attention are not just stronger in and of themselves, but they function better together in a coordinated manner. And that's what allows us to, again, fuel our performance, given all the things attention is needed for, as we talked about. Is there, is there, maybe if it's focus, notice, and redirect, is there a 3B of redirect without judgment? Because people go, ah, oh, damn it, I suck. I can't believe I can't focus so, on this. And they, and they storytell again about that. And such that's an not being point. present. I am yeah. so happy you said that. And I think underlining that part is key. The first thing to say is your mind will wander. I didn't say, if you happen to be one of those weird people whose mind wanders, right. it's it's right. normalizing it. Right. The win and the whole reason I named the practice Find Your Flashlight is because get that experience, get that little dopamine burst of like, ha, found my flashlight. It's not where it's supposed to be. All I have to do is move it back. Mm. But the, the, the challenge is knowing where the flashlight is. 
because usually we are lost in the simulation and we're infused with that simulation. We think we're in a different reality. So noticing and returning without judgment is absolutely key. And, and the reason I think that we can feel comfortable doing that is because mind wandering is the default state of the brain. Half the time we're mind wandering. So of course you're going to mind wander. That's not a flaw with your brain or even the fact that you're mind wandering during this practice. The win is that you notice it and come back. And that's your point of power, frankly. That's how you own your attention. Okay. And if we own our attention, so the idea is not to be able to be better at this mindfulness practice. The idea is that this is transferable to other endeavors. Does it mean then that we become more aware, which you've already alluded to a little bit, and maybe I'm just filling in the blanks, um, more aware of, um, uh, we're bringing greater attention to our emotions. We are able to focus on the flashlight when we do have that project due and we don't get distracted, that we um, are aware more of our environments. And is that the whole idea that we're just, if we focus on this really narrow thing of like, focus on my breath, not for the breath's sake, not to increase lung capacity, not to increase, you know, nasal breathing, all that stuff, but for just like as the, the, the focusing, yeah, um, the target stake. Yeah. The yeah. target yeah. that then it just transfer, it will just magically kind of like, it's not magic. In, in, <laughs> it, it, it'll just happen with the rest of our life. Or is there another sort of like, um, um, being aware of triggers that then pull you off of that's, your... Yeah, you're now going to the next advanced practice, right? So so first of all, I just want to make clear because when we started this stuff, we had no idea if it would transfer. We knew it was not about the breath. The whole reason people mm-hmm. practice mindfulness is not to become Olympic level breath followers. It's so that they have that intrinsic capacity held like physical strength embodied within them. And when I said it's not magic, what I meant is it's frankly just in the same way if you exercise your upper body, the chances of your muscles in your in your shoulders and back getting stronger are just the fact of biology. That's what we were thinking. Brain biology suggests that if you exercise certain brain networks over and over again, that will become strengthened. Their coordination will become strengthened. When we put people in the MRI scanner and we look at their functional brain connectivity and their brain structures, we see, ah, those nodes of attention are looking stronger. They're looking healthier. Their coordination is better. So, so yes, the first step is it can transfer. That's very, very important. We never saw that transfer when we had people play brain games. We didn't see it when we had those light and sound devices. We didn't ever see transfer into other aspects of their lives. What you're suggesting is what I mean by it's the next level is now it's not just notice that your mind has wandered away, but then linger a little bit. Huh? look at that. That's the 10th time I've thought about that interaction I had. Back to the breath. And then outside of the formal practice, you can actually look at difficult difficulty, things that were yanking your attention away, an emotional pain, a frustration, a real problem, and potentially even gain insight because you've allowed yourself to see its, its presence in your mind, but not get lost in it. You have some distance from it to understand the situation a little bit more clearly because you're not fused with the situation. So absolutely, that's the, the, the progression of these practices is, it's, it's like you were saying earlier when we, when we first started talking, like if something bad is going on, I just want to distract myself. In some sense, you could do that even in, during the practice, like, oh, that bad thought happened. Oh, just focus on the breath again. But what you kind of start developing is a tolerance that this negative content or disturbing content, I'm okay. I can be there in the presence of it without becoming destabilized. 
you know, and then it actually, if you think about what I've proposed in the book, that's one of the next practices uh, where we're really taking on this um, kind of mental toughness by just watching the contents of the mind without having any focus. It's a more advanced practice, something we call open monitoring. Mm, So I love that um, present without being uh, destabilized. That's, that's, we, we talk a lot about, I, I, work with some of the uh, some elite athletes and mental toughness is a big part of what we do. And that's exactly what it is, is can you stay right here, right now, regardless of what's going on? Can you accept reality, make great choices afterwards, um, not being pulled through any of the things? So I love that. And another thing I've heard you say, which is, I think it's in the book, is like it's, um, this isn't about feeling better. Which is might be like fly in the face of exactly everything we're talking about. What do you mean it's not about feeling better? Like why the heck why the heck would I do this if it's not about feeling better? Can you kind of pull on that string a little bit? Right. In some sense, better is a biased view of reality, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's framing it a positive light. Like, you know, if frankly I'll tell you, like if you have if you talk to a firefighter and you talk about uh, kind of what you do to stabilize yourself, it's never going to be like, imagine that your buddy didn't get severely injured in that fire. That's not the reality. You might feel better thinking that, but that's not matched to reality. So, mm. but if you can actually know what has occurred and have a steadiness about you, have heart, have empathy, have concern without becoming so dysregulated and do that repeatedly in your life, frankly, you will feel better because anything that occurs will not so de- throw you off that there's no level ground. And, you know, here's the thing about paying attention to your breath quietly alone. We have such a power to destabilize ourselves. You know, think of five disturbing thoughts and boom, we're off. Our mind is racing. We're filled with cortisol. So if we can have that kind of mental toughness toward the content our own mind generates, you know, it's like, it's like the best algorithm designed exactly for what gets us. It's better than what Facebook can do or any social media company because we know what our exact vulnerabilities are. If we can stay with that for as little as 12 minutes a day, there will be an enormous amount of mental toughness that we never even knew we were capable of because I know what my buttons are more than anyone else does. And I'm here for it. And I'm just, it's here. And, you know, the way, the the kind of visual, the visual that I started getting when I was initially starting to practice is like, oh, you know, that very difficult thought I have about myself or my history or a past experience. It's almost like these are different versions of Amitri sitting right here. She's right here next to me, but I'm here too. I'm here too. I see her and I'm not denying her existence that she experienced that, or I'm not inflating her to see an alternate version of herself. It's all right here and I'm okay. That is a very powerful place to be. And that's a kind of, it's like Teflon or something. Like you feel so strong um, that you you know that nobody can push you off kilter because all the stuff that'll get you, you're totally aware of and you are with it. You're not denying it and you're not forcing it to be other than it is. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I'm actually like listening to you. It's did you realize that you were going to be kind of going into like psychology when you started researching attention and because that's what this is. It's, it's yeah. psychology. It's it about is. how to but, deal you know, with trauma. It's about how to resist distractions. It's um, to stay even keeled, not get um, derailed. All know? of it is. It's, and that's what I'm saying about what you started out asking me about. You know, attention is powerful. It is, right. it right. is the conduit for all of that other stuff. 
So in some sense, I knew, and that was why I was interested in the topic as a neuroscientist, like if you want something that's really going to make an impact, maybe study this thing that we know recalibrates the entirety of how the brain functions. And all the things that you described are the content that next arises when we pay attention in a particular way. Um, I have a few others, but Pat, Pat, I, Pat I've been, I've hijacked. So it's okay. I'm, go. I'm enjoying like, I have a few others and I, just, I don't want to like, yeah. Let, yeah. Let me jump in and see if we can't get there anyways. Um, I'm curious, is there a distinction worth making between what folks maybe consider meditation and what you've studied, what you do in the lab and what you're calling mindfulness training? Yeah. Are they, is that, are they synonyms or is there something Great. worth? So, I'm unpack? so glad you asked that. Usually I'll, I'll say it, but I'm so glad you prompt me to say something. So in my mind, meditation is a broad, broader umbrella term, like the term sports, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we know that uh, volleyball and, and gymnastics are both sports. What it takes to train for those very different. Right, the expertise you need to have, the physicality, etc., very different. Same thing with the term meditation. Medi- meditation is a broad un- umbrella term. Is again from the neuroscience perspective, engaging in specific practices with regularity to cultivate specific mental qualities. And this term comes from the world's wisdom tradition. Whether it's mm. Sufism, contemplative prayer, you know, Christian contemplative prayer, you know, Catholicism, Hindu, Ju- Judaic, Buddhist. We know if we look at any world religion uh, and spiritual tradition, there's an aspect of it. And what is it actually guiding people to do? Engage in certain practices to cultivate specific mental qualities. So that's the broad category. It ends up that mindfulness meditation training, which I shorthand as mindfulness training, the intention for the practice is to cultivate qualities of mind that are present-centered, non-judgmental, non-reactive. So that's what we're training for. That's why I'm emphasizing that aspect. It's not separate from meditation. It's the training regime to cultivate this type of mental quality versus a transcendent state or a aligned with God in a particular way state. And frankly, because it's tied to sensory experience, which transpires in the present moment, we can teach it in a way that doesn't require any particular worldview. You know, saying to people, pay attention to breath-related sensations in this present-centered, non-evaluative way doesn't matter what belief system you have. You have a breath. You can pay attention. You can do this practice. So it allows us to much more fluidly introduce people to practices um, because it's just using some of these more fundamental aspects of our human experience. Does that does that help? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I've I've done a lot of meditation, and I've never heard that. I just I, I'm a big believer in. Um, words meaning things and I've never kind of distinguished between the two. So that's, that was phenomenal to hear that. Um, as you lay that out with the mindfulness, it's, um, open-mindedness, present moments, um, um, non-judgmental and you said non-reactive. Um, I think it's really powerful. There's, we've talked about it on our podcast and I know you have your take on it. The difference between responding and reacting again, words, meaning things and understanding the difference, just as there's a difference between meditation and mindfulness, there's a difference between responding and reacting. Yeah. So I can tell you what I think about the difference. Um, in, in some sense, reacting is, has an automa- automaticity to it, right? So if somebody throws a ball at me, I'm going to go like this and grab it. Or if there's some, if I think it's going to hit me, I'm going to swat it away. I didn't contemplate what was occurring. I, I responded in a ballistic uh, and an automatic fashion. And oftentimes our complex responses are reactive in that way. They're not considering the actual circumstances and they're not deliberating between choices. 
So responding is actually allowing situational awareness to inform the actions you take instead of going in on autopilot and just essentially having the mental equivalent of swatting away a ball that might hit you in the face. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes a particular kind of mind to be able to be situationally aware. And it, it actually, it, it takes, remember we talked about like the narrowing and then the broadening there's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a step beyond just simply, simply being aware of our present moment. It's like, we've got to, we have to be situationally aware of not only what's happening right now in the external environment, which is typically what people refer to when they talk about situational awareness, even in the context of elite performance, right? What is, what is going on? Like scan the field, as we would say to our, our football players. But when we said scan the field, what we didn't, what we meant was not just the field out there, scan the field in here. What's going on in, in your mind right now? What are the prominent things that are sticking out? What's novel? What's threatening? What's preoccupying you right now? And when you can have that fullness of situational awareness, then you can have a better chance of responding versus reacting. Because frankly, you have more information. You have more data about what's, what's occurring. Uh, and of course, the more you do this, the faster you can engage that, that responding orientation. Um, it's so funny, like a lot of the military people, when I started saying this to some of our military colleagues, they'd say, ah, yeah, that's what we call, you know, um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. We have that in our sport as well. I love it. Yeah, I love that. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But the thing that I think I'm adding to it is you can train for that. It's not just a particular thing you can implement. You can get better at doing it. So essentially you can be faster, <laughs> not just fast. Very cool. So... I'm curious. You talked about that there was, you know, the playing the video games, the other type, the other things that you tested and implemented. Yeah. And mindfulness was seemed to be the linchpin. It seemed to be the one. Is there anything else that either you studied and that you've seen as a common practice that didn't move the needle, or is there? And the other side of that question is: Is there anything that is um, close to? I'm thinking like things like journaling. Is it um, um, stillness? Is it getting into nature? Is like are there things that also um, seem to have yeah, you know, secondary effects? Well, or very similar effects like journaling, going into nature, stillness. I think of the Venn diagram of that and what we're cultivating with mindfulness training, high, high degree of overlap, a lot of circles overlapping there. But then we'd have to probe what is it, what's happening during expressive writing, for example, journaling. We're actually taking a defused or decentered perspective around our experience. If you're journaling, you're actually taking a step back to write the story of what's going on. You're not in the story. You're describing it. You're taking like a reporter's view or what we call the bird's eye view. You're Essentially, the flashlight isn't in the moment. It's over here shining on my own mind, and then I'm ex expressing it. So there's an overlap there between what we're cultivating in mindfulness and what expressive writing is. When it comes to stillness and when it comes to nature, I think a lot of those same qualities, observational stance, steadiness of mind, being in the moment. You know, if you're, if you're rock climbing, you can't be anywhere, but right there, you will fall. <laughs> you will get injured, whatever the sport is, or whatever the activity is. If you're out in the world, you need to have your full focus on that with that looseness of what's happening around me as well. So I think yeah, that, I that there's a lot of overlap in a lot of the things you're saying. I mean, we've tried a lot of things that are beneficial in the same way mindfulness is, for example, with the football team, we, with the University of Miami football team, we gave half the football team relaxation training, which is sort of a, a very common and successful sport and performance training regime, right? Progressive muscle relaxation, visualization, et cetera. And the other half got mindfulness training. What we found is that both groups benefited 
when it came to mood and decreased stress, but only mindfulness was able to benefit attention. So our suggestion would be if you're time pressured and you can do one thing, probably do the thing that'll give you the maximum bang for your mm-hmm. bang for your buck, so to speak. And mindfulness can allow both to occur. I'm curious. Um, one of the things that Ben and I, I mean, this podcast is very much about it. Ben's work, my work is very much about trying to help people get healthier, stay healthier, make healthier decisions. I'm curious if we can't maybe narrow in on how or in what ways strengthening our attention might help people get closer to a place where they are healthier than they were beforehand, both on an individual level, but also maybe on a, on a societal or a cultural level. Um, right. We're coming out of hopefully coming out of, you know, this, this two year pandemic, like, is there an opportunity here to look at the work you're doing and say, this is the key to again, more individual and more cultural health. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And I think part of it is that we are now understanding that the mind, the brain is not all that different than the body. We have a cultural normative understanding now that physical activity daily with some threshold that's achieved, not just taking your dog for a walk, but 30 minutes of cardio three to five times a week is what you need in order to sustain your physical wellness, right? And the more you do beyond that, the more you benefit. But we don't really have the cultural understanding that the mind can also be trained for optimum psychological health and emotional well-being. That's what, that is the, the actual passion that I have is, ah, the tools of what we know from neuroscience and attention research is that the mind is very much like the body. And these are the practices we can do with regularity. Like I said, the prescription we gave uh, is based on 15 years of research, 12 minutes, three to five times a week, increases well-being because it tends to enhance this way we can pay attention. So I, I do see it as not only uh, health promoting, but it's actually hopefully going to get people more curious about the active role they can play in their psychological wellness in the same way they do their physical wellness with physical activity. Uh, last question, or maybe not last question, but as we're starting to wrap up, um, I'm the parent of two young kids. Ben's the parent of four kids, including a couple young ones. Where and how have you thought about the work that you're doing relating to kids and filling kids in terms of whatever age, maybe you've, you've got some insight into, um, I imagine that this is beneficial to them, but do you have any advice, any insight as to where and how to start to incorporate some of these exercises into their lives? Absolutely. I mean, my kids aren't little ones anymore. They're 15 and 19, but you know, the first thing I'll say is that, um, mindfulness in the context of K through 12 education, even pre-K through 12 education is a growing and booming enterprise. There are many different programs and and practices and even entire school districts uh, that are implementing mindfulness in in a big way. The key is that it's developmentally appropriate because these same three systems of attention that we talked about that all rely on the frontal lobes, you know, the frontal lobes are the slowest to develop over human human development. So we don't fully develop our frontal lobes till we're about 25 or so. So if we start requiring of children that have a different biology to do the things that fully developed frontal lobes are capable of doing, it's going to be a no-win situation. So, you know, simple things like I'll give you an example of like really little ones, what we do when we want them to become able to focus, but be situationally aware. And it's a little bit of a twist on kind of typical things that you might do in like a preschool context. So one of the activities was, you know, all the kids and you've got four. So if they're up for it, you could even do it with your family. <laughs> um, then, so you sit in a circle and get like a bell that is really easy to ding. 
and and let them ding the heck out of it first. Just get it out of their system. <laughs> but then the task is for the next minute, we're going to see how many times we can pass it around the circle without making a sound. So they are both focused because they want to move it in a way that allows for that precision and very situationally aware that there's not even a hint of sound. That's like a fun way to do it. And then the win is they did it, right? They got it around once and it's like a team effort. It's a group effort. So that's what I mean by developmentally appropriate ways. We would never ask a child at that young of an age to sit quietly for 45 minutes and focus on the breath. I mean, it would be not a smart thing to do, <laughs> but also active things, you know, like notice uh, this, uh, uh, like playing with bubbles or like there's, you've probably seen these little like uh, snow globes and watching the, the snow settle. So you can have mm -hmm. things that are kind of fun and even things that you might already do, but take a mindful orientation to it. So they're starting to learn these basic practices of focusing, noticing, redirecting, which will help them because frankly, um, they're going to be challenged in the same way we are, uh, not just because of their the developmental stage they're at, but because they live in this modern world with so much distractibility uh, and for sure the likely chance of experiencing stress, threat, and poor mood. Hmm. In your research lab, or in your research and, and as you continue to do the work, obviously this book has is the culmination of all the work you've done up till now. I'm curious what you're excited about, what you're working on, what you think the future, you know, what is the next book gonna be about? What do you think it's gonna be about as you sit here now? <laughs> Well, Let I, her breathe. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. <laughs> but you know, I'll tell you what we're actively doing in my lab because, of course, this is a this is an evolution, right? We're constantly doing research. We're doing research, and for me, I'm still very much interested in the issue of scalable access to these practices. So, if we now have a prescription that works, how do we get this out to more people? And and in particular, what we know is that the chances of somebody learning the practices and even opening up to them is going to be much higher if they learn it from somebody who knows their particular challenges, their particular goals, the culture. So for me, it's thrilling to talk to you guys because the community of people that trust you see how you're incorporating and thinking about it so that they understand that when you talk to them about this, it's not coming from some place of becoming a Buddhist monastic or, you know, mm -hmm. trying to become a, um, I don't know, a better real estate broker. It's coming from the kinds of things that they care about because they trust you and you care about them. So what we're doing now is things like train the trainer training. So if we've been able to get the prescription down for, for skilled people to deliver it, how long will it take us? How can we efficiently get people trained up to deliver it in their context? And we just submitted a paper recently where we looked at train the trainer for military spouses, offering it to fellow spouses, HR professionals in a business, offering it to workers in that business. Um, and I want to kind of proliferate that to see how mm -hmm. we can get it. So um, because fast tracking it, it can only come with trust. And I will trust somebody who knows what my life is and what's important to me. And then I don't need to convince you of why it might be beneficial to you. It's in the, it's, it's in between the spaces of the words we say to each other. We know, you know, military, me trying to tell somebody, cause I'm not a military spouse, why they could help them is so much less powerful than a spouse who's, who's lived that life that has benefited from it saying it. So that's one question. The other one is just technological solutions. How can we offer effective apps, learning management systems, et cetera? And then how do we cater this for leaders in various enterprises? So, for example, we're starting a project now with all the newly minted one-star generals in the U.S. Army. And if leaders understand this, then again, this sort of uh, contagion within those that they lead will be greater because they'll see what a six, they know, we all know what it looks like to have a totally dysregulated 
totally distracted leader and nobody likes it. So if you see the leader embodying these practices in a successful manner, you're going to be like, I want to be like that. What do I need to do to do that? So those are some of the exciting next steps, but it really is pursuing this and honing solutions that I think will be more uh, feasible and accessible for people. As somebody that's studied this so much, what is your practice? What are you doing right now? Yeah. You know, I usually, if I'm doing um, a training, I will try to do what the people in the group are doing as a kind of an allegiance or like a shared experience with them. But I, I try to get in my 12 to 15 minutes a day. Uh, and oftentimes I will do some combination of um, kind of the practices we talked about, a focused attention practice or open monitoring. And I'll also introduce a third kind of practice, which we haven't really talked about, but I'll just mention because it's in the book and people can read about it. Uh, what's called, we call it a connection practice or even something called loving kindness. It's a totally different category where we are essentially spending time uh, reminding ourselves of our core values in some sense and wishing well for ourselves. Have you found that um, when that daily practice takes place matters? Is it more powerful in the morning? Is it um, an evening thing? Is I mean, it you know, when, thing, some, when things get hectic? Yeah. I mean, in some sense, the answer is very much like physical activity or physical exercise. The best time to practice is when you will. <laughs> so figure out when that is for your routine. Um, and if that is in the morning, that's great. It has different qualities. I mean, I would, I would encourage people to try to figure out when they can start slow with, if you think you can do, you know, six minutes, do three. If you can do three, if you think you can do three minutes, do one minute, but get that sense of success of achieving it and then build up to the 12 minutes and incorporate it into some routine in your day. That's the chances of it sticking are going to be greater. I would say if you start in the morning, it has a, has a different quality. Like I noticed that my, you know, my, my coffee tastes better. Somehow like I'm, I'm there for the experience, but if I, if I practice in the evening, I get better sleep. So it, it just really depends. Mm. The book, again, is called Peak Mind. Find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day. Amishi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work. Uh, I love this book. I highly recommend it. Um, and folks can find it wherever they get their books. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everybody out there, for listening, for your ratings and your reviews. And Ben and I will be back for another episode of Chasing Excellence next week. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.